Today is February 1st. We are joined by a very special guest to talk about Paul O'Neill and the Yankees. Of course, Jack Curry is with us. The music isn't connected. I'm holding it up to the mic. We tried real hard and failed us. <laughs> Uh, hello and welcome to Talking Yanks, brought to you by SeatGeek. My name is Jimmy. We have Jake here, BBD producing in the corner, and the third J, Jack Curry, joins us. Our first ever guest on Talking Yanks, and now I mean I'm we have, I don't know the appearance count, but I think it's probably five or six now. So thank you very that much. That sounds about right, and I'm excited that I was the first guest ever because. As you and your massive company continue to ascend in the sports media world, that line on my resume is getting more and more <laughs> impressive that I was the first guest with John Boy and Jake. So I appreciate that. I appreciate you guys having me back. And obviously, congrats on all your continued success. Well, thank you very much. It well, wasn't on the resume. Then it was kind of in that bottom section yeah, where it's yeah. like donated blood. Yeah. It was on Job Boy Media. Now it's it keeps slowly climbing. The Twitter bio soon. Yes. Yes. First Original first ever guest. guest. <laughs> Man. Yeah, we're a little different. That that time, uh, I, I believe we called you and I held my phone to the mic and, <sighs> and Jake was coming through uh, the computer and I didn't have a microphone. I, a little different setup now. So that's... That's awesome. We have a uh, a new book coming out, which when you emailed us, I you know no whispers of this at all, Jack. I was very excited. Hoke, whenever he has a new book out, he like leaks it to us, like you know by accident. <laughs> they leak uh, it to anyone. Yeah, they leak it to anyone. <laughs> it was brought up a couple of times on Yes. Uh, Paul mentioned it. Michael K was kind enough to mention it during a game. I did an interview on our batting practice show talking about it briefly, but it comes out in May. I'm pretty excited about it because Paul, I believe, has some hitting theories and hitting philosophies that that fans of the Yankees and just baseball fans would really be interested in. So we cover a lot of those. And then honestly, guys, Paul's career has woven through so many hitting giants. You talk about him opening up his career. He's on the Reds eight days and Pete Rose breaks Ty Cobb's record. So he's on the field for that. He plays with Don Mattingly for a handful of seasons and gets to see Mattingly at work and adopt some of Mattingly's methods. He's there when Derek Jeter gets his first hit and Jeter ends up getting 3,500 more, obviously connections with Pinella and Torrey and Showalter. And there's even a chapter on Ted Williams because Ted Williams once called up Paul and gave him some hitting advice. So there's a lot of hitting material in there and, and a lot for people to learn about Paul and, and his methods. And Paul is like, you know, he lends a lot of humor to the broadcast when he's there, but there's a lot of insight as well. I, I think I've clipped a lot of him talking about um, the first time I really loved something he did was he broke down back in 2017 or 2018, the difference between Greg Bird's swing and judge's swing and how bird got all his power from his legs and just used his arms as like a pendulum where judge got all his power from the upper body back, something like that. And then he, he said, you know, you have different hitters, you have leg hitters and arm hitters. And, you know, I watch a lot of baseball, but at that point I never knew that there was two categories of people and you can really understand it. Like, Oh yeah, that's why I like Maddenly swing look like that. And birds looks like that. And judge and, and Stan stands like all upper body basically he just turns his, uh, legs. So O'Neill brings, he brings a ton of insight as well as being the like Rizzuto character in the booth now where he's going to go run and ask Sterling about home run calls in the middle of the <laughs> inning and fun stuff like that. I'm glad you said that John boy, because I do think that sometimes because Paul jokes around in the broadcast booth and what are you eating today? What's the meal for today? <laughs> How much did you work out today? And all that is great. And, and he does have that kind of personality that appeals to Yankee fans. But what you said about hitting really strikes home and struck home for me as we were working on this book, just even the disparity between he and Mattingly, they're both left-handed hitters 
and they both loved to work. But in terms of the way that they hit, Paul had Paul kind of stood taller and had that leg kick, and that was his timing mechanism. Whereas Mattingly was kind of a weight shift hitter, and everything was starting from the back and then generating all the way through your body. So we do discuss a lot of that in this book. We talk about the modern hitters, and Paul was a line drive hitter. Paul's Paul's swing started out level and then would have a slight uppercut at the end, which is what Ted Williams advocated. Paul talks about how hitters today, it, a lot of them, it, it's more of the uppercut. It's more of the pursuit of the fly ball and because launch angle and exit velocity are, are such common terms these days. So we get into a lot of that, and I think we make it interesting by telling some human and personal stories in there. It's not a hitting textbook. I don't want to scare anybody away. It's got hitting information wrapped around a lot of individual stories. How uh, how was Paul through the process? Because you mentioned you you obviously already have a strong relationship with Paul. You've known him for 30 years. He's, you know, you're writing the book uh, on him a little bit. And, you know, we, we get the tidbits and, you know, we love the personality side of things. Um, and obviously him and his wife, Neville, and going back, I mean, was was Paul full open book? Did you have to, like, work on him a little bit to get some different things out? Or was was he ready to go from the jump? That's a great question, Jake. And someone asked me, when did you decide to work on this book with Paul? So technically, it's a year and change ago, but it's probably been a decade. It probably goes back to all these hitting conversations we have had and the idea of, wow, I'd really like to bring this out in book form. And I have to say, when I raised the idea with Paul, he, he was very receptive. And one thing I know about Paul is he, he's very structured. And I wanted to make sure he knew this is exactly what we're going to do. And so I had an outline ready. And I mentioned some of the people that we have already mentioned, Pete Rose, Lou Pinella, Joe Torrey. I said, we're going to tell your story, but we're also going to include all these people. Mm. I interviewed every manager that he ever played for. I interviewed former pitchers who faced him and teammates of his. So he was very interested, very receptive. I guess one thing that was interesting about this project was we never spoke face to face. Thankfully, we know each other very well. So as Paul was giving an answer, I could almost envision what his face might look like. But because of COVID and he was doing games from uh, the basement in either Ohio or Florida, and I was in studio, all of our interviews for this book were either phone calls or text or emails. And it's kind of an interesting way to do it, but I, I think it worked out well. The, uh, you, you mentioned all the different names and I... I grew up a Yankees fan as a kid, so you don't know. I think all baseball fans, you don't know much before you start watching. Uh, when Jake and I did like a, we watched a bunch of games from the 70s as just like a COVID time uh, quarantine content because there's no games. And I mean, honestly, I'm so glad we did it because I learned so much because I don't think a lot of baseball fans go back. All you have is documentaries. I used to live off the World Series documentaries from the 90s. And that's kind of was all my insight into O'Neill. Uh, and and those Yankees because you it wasn't watching every game back then, and then the Yankeeography on Paul O'Neill is one of my favorites. I love you know my favorite thing Yankee fans have ever done is the O'Neill chant for his last game at Yankee Stadium. So I thought I knew a ton, but I only know Yankees Paul O'Neill and in the booth and the first couple chapters. I mean the the transition from Rose to Pinella or yeah from Rose to Pinella and and getting called up. On the day Rose is going to become the all-time hit leader, it's so funny. It was a September call-up, so I don't want to take the whole story, but that was like, I was kind of mind-blowing. I was like, what a weird introduction to baseball to be so tied to Rose's record and then punishment the next year. He was actually, he had eight days in the major leagues when Rose broke the record. He comes up and makes his debut pinch hits. Rose tells him, you're not going to play tonight. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot going on. We're still vying for a division title. They use a couple of pitchers. They have to pinch hit. He gets a hit in his first game. I think he gets one or two more at bats. Rose breaks the record and there he is in the dugout saying, well, what am I supposed to do? He said, I didn't want to be a mannequin. So he just follows everybody else out onto the field. And you talk about the, the accidental tourist or the accidental uh, actor. There he was. He was the accidental teammate. He said at that point in his career, Pete Rose was more of a poster on his wall than he was a teammate. 
but there he is celebrating one of the greatest <laughs> achievements in baseball history. We know what has happened to Pete Rose since then. He's still the all-times hit leader, and, and Paul believes he should be in the Hall of Fame. We talk about that. And then I'm glad you brought up the Pinellas stuff, John Boy, because there, there was that they clashed. And both of them, and I interviewed Lou, both of them think they were very similar, but their hitting philosophies weren't. So we dig into that and, and how that was a struggle for Paul. You look at his line in 1991, career high, 28 home runs. But he looks back on that season as a failure because he thinks he struck out too much. He thinks his average was too low. He thinks he was clumsy in the box as opposed to being smooth. And the transition of being traded to the Yankees, that ends up being a revelation because he's with Mattingly. He's with Boggs. He's with the type of hitters that he thought yeah. he should have been. And the one hilarious tidbit was Pinella told him to wear like boosts in his heels to keep him on his toes more. And then O'Neill saying he felt like he was playing in high heels, which I just can't imagine how frustrated he had to be. You got, I've me never like, heard. And, and Luke Pinella is a great hitter and was a great hitting instructor. He, he helped make Mattingly who he was, but I had never heard a coach advising a player to do that. And you're right. He thought that O'Neill kind of settled on his heels a little bit and so he put asked him to put lifts in his cleats to kind of lift him up a little bit in the box, right? And and Paul did not feel very comfortable with that. I wish we had video of that. I cannot believe you're giving me an excuse to wear lifts the next time we play Blitzball. Um, <laughs> that's that's so good. But you're better on your heels. <laughs> well, I'll talk to Paul about it. Um, and Jack, I mean, I'm. You know, obviously the DJ comparison had been made when when he started going with the Yankees because it is crazy to look back, and I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's a main focus of the book here because you talk 91, Paul O'Neill, All Star, Cincinnati, 28 home runs, 92, you know, kind of the numbers across the board dip, um, and I, you you say that he loved the New York environment because they had kind of kind of a those lefty hitters you mentioned, I mean, Wade Boggs, Mattingly, like those those guys you're walking into are kind of the creme de la creme at the time, especially the type of hitting Paul likes and appreciates. Um, I mean, was there was there any big city fear? Like, you know, again, it, it's Paul. He's the, he's the local guy, married his, you know, elementary school sweetheart. Is that what we're calling it? Like, and then, you know, to, to go to the... Kindergarten. I know it's insane. It, the it, first girl he ever saw. It blows my mind every time, but it also it's like it's beautiful and what makes Paul Paul. But I I mean, was there any big city lights, wide eye stuff, or he was just ready to go? Uh, one hundred percent, Jake. And if uh, readers get this book and they they jump to chapter three, that's where we talk about the trade, and he was absolutely distraught because even though he had struggled in '92 and was trying to find his footing. As you said, Cincinnati was his home. The Reds were his hometown team. They won a World Series in 1990. And Paul admits that when he heard about the trade, all he thought about was big, bad New York. <laughs> and when he had visited New York, his itinerary was pretty much Grand Hyatt on East 42nd to the team bus, to the ballpark, back to the team bus, back to the hotel. He was not going to Little Italy. He, he was not going to the Upper West Side. He was not checking out museums or anything like that. He was in and out of New York, didn't know a lot about New York. You mentioned Neville, his wife. He said that Neville was also upset because their, their roots were in Ohio. But guys, do you want to know what helped change that immediately? Stick Michael, who never gets enough credit for his role in Yankee history, called him and started talking to him about hitting. And about where he would fit in with the Yankees, where he would fit in with the lineup, why that stadium would work to his credit and his benefit as a hitter. And then Stick, being the smart man that he was, said, you're just like Mattingly. And that, that floored O'Neill <laughs> because he would not have put himself in Mattingly's category. But what Stick meant was, yeah, Donnie hit home runs and had big home run seasons, but he was a guy who wanted to put the ball in the gap. He was a guy who hit more line drives. And as soon as he got that call from Stick. O'Neill said he felt like he could exhale and said, "Wow, this this may end up being okay after all." And and we know what happened after that. I I, I was shocked to because I you know the Cone book came out. Um, perfect game, I believe. Was uh, what's the Cone book? book? Yeah, full count, full, full count. count. But what's the subtitle then? 
Oh, full count. Uh, my, <laughs> hold on. I got it right here. Full count. My, uh, Something. the education of a pitcher. Education of a pitcher. Well, How do I not know the own title to my uh, book. <laughs> Full, um, I was the comparisons between Cohen and O'Neill are kind of there where they play for their hometown team and then they go to New York and they both had coaches that drastically tried to change how they naturally wanted to play baseball. And as I was reading the first couple of chapters, I was thinking, this is pretty, I didn't, you know, it's kind of similar where I don't think of them as that much alike, but they are because they, Coney also had the fire, fiery competitor in him. Um, probably better than hiding it than O'Neill. And that's where the book got super fun, get super fun on Paul's relationship to his um, frustrations or antics or whatever you want to call them is fascinating to me because he stands by them completely, but he's yes. also deeply embarrassed of them. And you can <laughs> tell every time they play him punching the water cooler on yes network, he's not loving that the booth is showing this footage and he talks about the kick, and even though it's hilarious and it saved a run, he says he's deeply embarrassed of that play, of losing his cool. But then he also stands by that that's how he is and who he is, and he shouldn't change it. So I've, I, I, I kind of like just marvel at that push and pull in his own brain. <laughs> well, first of all, your, your Coney comparison is, is off the charts accurate. Both drafted in the same year at a high school both Midwest kids who were all around athletes. Paul actually told me that he thought at one point he would be a basketball player going forward, not a baseball player. He was recruited by Bobby Knight, ferocious competitors, un unbelievable attitudes about succeeding. And you're right, along the way, some coaches might say to you, this is the way I think you should do it. And I think in any line of business, if you have a certain way that you've done things and you've had success in that way, and, and as an athlete, it may sometimes be difficult to say, Hey coach, this is the way I want to do it. I applaud Cone and O'Neill for uh, standing by what they felt was right. And you're right. Also John boy about the fiery attitude that he had. If he was Bernie Williams and we had, we actually have a chapter <laughs> <Yeah>. called uh, <laughs> I was never as Zen as Bernie Williams. <laughs> If Paul was Bernie Williams, he believes, and this is not a knock at Bernie, all of our personalities are different, or Jeter. If Paul was Bernie Williams or Jeter, who kind of kept it in a little bit more, he said he never would have had the, the career that he had. His, his venom, so to speak, his volatility, that made him who he was. Guys, he thought he should get a hit every time up. And I know that sounds ludicrous, and you say to yourself, oh, sure he did. When we're talking now, it's 20 years since his career ended. And he was repeating to me, every time I made an out in my career, that pitch that I made an out on, fastball up in the zone, slider down and away, two-seamer inside, I had gotten a hit yeah. against that pitch at some point in my career. So why didn't I get a hit there? That's I, his <laughs> attitude, which is a pretty amazingly – Competitive. It's so funny. Competitive, he, he perfectionist says, attitude. He says he gets mad when people say, you just got to tip your hat to the pitcher. He made the perfect pitch. <laughs> he said, I'm tipping my hat to the pitcher. I can hit that pitch. There's no <laughs> such thing as a perfect pitcher. It's just, just so competitive. Um, yeah. All right. We're going to talk about competitive betting for a second. Wow. Because DraftKings, big sponsor here, sponsor the whole studio. We're coming to you live from the DraftKings studio, Jack. Did, did, uh, forget to tell you that that you know this is the DraftKings studio and if you're interested in turning five dollars into 280 in free bets there's one more football game going super bowl yeah. 56 so they're giving everyone 56 to 1 odds download the DraftKings sportsbook app now use promo code john boy and get 56 to 1 odds on any bet bet five dollars and win 280 in free bets if your team wins that's promo code john boy this week at DraftKings sportsbook are you ready for my minko impression do it. Here's the disclaimer. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for full details. Must be 21 plus. Physically present in New York. Gambling problem? Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. Wow. Not bad, right? B plus. Okay. okay. Yeah, that's the first time that's I read fine. that read. So they, they're changing it up on me when it was the same for a year. I was giving Minko a, a run for his money. You got a Russo lined up? Everybody's got a Russo in person. Jake's got a... Uh, he can't I, do I, it. Every day of my life. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> it's just natural at this point. <laughs> is uh is Paulie is he a Bengals guy? Do do I know this? His football team? Cut out for one second. I heard is, is Paulie is, a what? Is he a Bengals fan? I mean, prior to Cincinnati, is he a Cincinnati Bengals guy? Oh yes, of course he is. Okay, anything Cincinnati, okay. he, he loves absolutely. There's a there's a, a mention of Jim Breach in the book, Jake. So there you mm. go. Go back and look up Cincinnati Bengals kickers. Yeah, Paul is uh, absolutely a fan of uh, Cincinnati sports. Excited about uh, about the Super Bowl. I'm sure. I haven't talked to him since Sunday. Kind of give him a little break since we finished the book. But yeah, definitely <laughs> a fan of that. And uh, he's uh, he's an interesting character. Very. The competitiveness, I think, is what always strikes me. Is just all these years later, still still thinking about at bats that that could have been more successful for him. Does he? Uh, uh, you know, I I get lost in some of the more important things. Does how does Paul O'Neill text? Is <laughs> is he a? Is he sending paragraphs? Are no there lots way. of commas? Is he like I'll just call you instead? What's what's how many, Paul O'Neill's? How text many strategy? words are skipped? Just because they can be like that's how my that's parents the, text. I love that you guys asked me this question. I'm sure Paul won't mind me sharing it. His last text was actually pretty was was a couple was a sentence. It was long because we tell a story in the book, uh-huh. uh, which a lot of people don't really know about. After he retired, the Yankees were having trouble in the outfield. They were playing John Vanderwall and Shane Spencer mm. in right field, and it was not going well. Then there was a game where Enrique Wilson had to play the outfield. He made Ooh. an error. Steinbrenner was going ballistic. They reached out to O'Neill and asked him about a comeback, which, which is fascinating because he was into it. So we detail that in the book. But he had told me that he was throwing long tossing with one of his sons. He told me it was Aaron. So he wanted to remind me that it was Andy I don't want to hurt his feelings. That was the last text. But then the text before that, okay, LMK. You got the lingo. <laughs> yeah, okay, know. good. Short, okay, got the hit, shorthand. Text hit. before that was the number three because we were trying to figure out a time to talk. And the text before that was okay. The text before that was very easy. So you're right. It's usually short and sweet. Okay. I like that. That makes sense. Yeah, it I like that a lot. My favorite uh, tidbit that I read, I, again, I haven't read every chapter, but I was enjoying, I was poking in, and hunting uh, ones. Like I read the Bernie chapter because I wanted to, uh, the dynamic there of them being bandmates in the paint closet. Literally yin and yang. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's hilarious. And the, I didn't know this story, and I'm going to spoil it, but there's a ton more good ones in the book. Uh he gets an award, Jake, for like an organizational award sure. for being uh, an exceptional hitter. In, mm. in the, like the Yankees gave, I don't know if it was a big deal, and it came with a trophy that they put in his locker. And then the next two weeks, he goes like two for 15 or whatever, and he came back and just smashed the trophy <laughs> in the middle <laughs> of the, the clubhouse. <laughs> he said it was a jinx or, no. you know, I'm not worthy of this or whatever it was. But I mean... Man, that's so funny that imagine your boss gives you an award for being mm-hmm. so good at hitting and then you just smash the award. Not for me. No, it's like, no, thank you. <laughs> well, Jake asked how receptive Paul was as we were working on the book. That story didn't come from Paul. Okay. That story came from another source <laughs> who I was talking to. So during the midst of an interview one day, I said, hey, Paul, do you remember? And as John Boy said, Paul doesn't remember exactly. It was a, probably a monthly hitting award that they, they, they give these things out. He didn't remember exactly what it was, and there's no way to find that research-wise. Yeah. So we just went with organizational hitting award. And as John Boy detailed, he had a few bad games. He was ticked off. He said he was sitting by his locker, and he's staring at that little man, that, probably that little, <laughs> that little silver guy holding a bat, and he just destroyed the thing. And in the book, he details – so we had 25 guys in our clubhouse at that time, probably would have about five who would have thought about doing something like that. He said, I was the one who absolutely would do it. And, and then he said to me, well, I got another one later on and it's a pretty nice trophy. So I have that one at home. So he, he <laughs> does have one of those trophies. That's funny. I, uh, Jack, I, the, the one question going through my head right now, because we talked a little before the show about, you know, obviously the 90s Yankees and how 
how old we were at the time and drinking it all in and, you know, why we say Mr. Torian. You know, when, when you do those Yankees, you know, it usually starts with Jeter and you go Posada, Bernie, Andy, all those guys. We think about the core and then you get, you know, Tino and Paulio and all those guys and, man, I'm on the baseball reference now and you forget how underappreciated guys like Knobloch were and stuff like that. But now that I'm looking at it, I'm I'm looking at the player's age and Paulie at the time, like I'm looking at the 2000 Yankees or 99, he's 36, 37. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm looking at the rest of this lineup and Bernie was 30, Jeter's 25, 26. Did Paul feel like he had to be kind of more of a leader? Because I, I feel like we all jump to Jeter whenever we can, basically. But there's a big difference be- between being 26 and 36. Like, that's <laughs> that's a big 10-year gap. So, I guess, how did how did Paul feel that almost, I don't want to say burden, but responsibility? I think when you look at Paul O'Neill's career, and he would probably tell you this, there were guys who would be very vocal in the clubhouse, Posada was one of those guys. And we have a good story in the book about, about Posada and his leadership. Jeter was a guy who was the captain, although he wasn't while O'Neill was there. He became the captain in 03. O'Neill was already retired. And of course, Jeter stood out because he's the he was one of the faces of baseball. I think the way that Paul was a leader, Jake, was just by the way he the lunch pail approach. This guy was coming to work every day. This guy was going to take 150 swings. Yes. 150 swings before a game. And if half hour before the game, he didn't feel right with that swing, he'd run down to their netted batting cage down the right field line and and take 40 or 50 more. And I think Paul's approach is what caused other people to say, hey, I got to grind like that too. And when you talk to some guys on that 98, 99, 2000, that, that, that whole successful period, they, they drove each other by the way that they, they performed on the field, but also the way they prepared off the field. And Paul talks about that. They, they had guys, Tino Martinez, Bernie Williams, Jeter, Posada, Girardi, throw him in the mix there. All, all of the pitchers, that's where I think you would call Paul more of a leader. The age gap was, was sizable between him and some of those guys. You're right. Some of that, though, ended up being humorous. We've got some exchanges between he and Jeter where Jeter would tease him about the 11 year age difference. And I don't want to, I don't want to give away my whole book, but there was one funny spring training encounter where O'Neill didn't know a very, very popular song that you guys would know. (laughs) And he had to reach out to Jeter and say, what the heck is this? So it was getting jiggy with it. I'll tell you. Uh, with, with, with Coney's book, I was shocked at, uh, not shocked, but I was very impressed with how well you captured his voice. I remember when we talked about that book, I just felt like it was Cone. And I remember asking like, you know, did he just, did he just talk and you just typed his words? That's what it sounded like with O'Neill. There's moments where I'm reading it where I I was kind of laughing at the fun you probably got to have, um, by using Paul's tone and voice. And there's one passage that I laughed out loud because and then maybe this is a direct quote that you wrote I don't know the ins and outs of it but he's uh you know he hadn't hit a home run for a couple a couple months or into the season uh let me see he said it right here he said um in early May we were both still searching for our first homer I didn't consider myself a home run hitter but zero homers in the first weeks of the season was pathetic (laughs) <laughs> made me laugh because it's just like you know he's he the whole thing's about how he does he doesn't care about home runs swings for lime drives but he's like but you don't get any gotta get for, couple, it's yeah. pathetic and uh did you have a lot of fun being able to use his his words a little and and that kind of like mini aggressive speak like calling himself an idiot or calling himself pathetic there yes the the short answer to your question is yes and there is a there is a technique in, in writing a book where you're writing it in someone else's voice. And you do want to make sure you you get their voice right. Because if I wrote a book where every every other word looked like something on an SAT test, even Paul himself would say, come on. Yeah. Paul always jokes around with Michael. Michael will say something in the booth and Paul will say, that's got to be a Fordham word. That's got to be a Fordham <laughs> word. I've never heard of that before. So one of my greatest compliments after I finished the Cone book uh, he had an event where his dad was there and I was there as well. 
And his father came up to me and he said, I want to tell you that I read the entire book and I felt like it was all David and I've lived every moment of his life, but I learned things about my son that I hadn't previously known. Wow. So that, that made my day as much as that book getting on the New York times bestseller list. The second best thing was that David Cohn's dad felt like it was his son talking. So I hope I accomplished that with Paul. People have phrases that they go to a lot. People have ways that they say things. We all do. And my, my technique with all this was I would tape an interview with him. I would transcribe the interview because I wanted to hear it again. I wanted to hear him say it again. I've had friends who'd say, well, why don't you just pay somebody to transcribe the interview? That'll, that'll speed up the process for you. I, I don't want to do that. I want to hear his words again. And then I do my best as I'm telling the story to be honest and use those words as much as I can. Obviously, people don't talk in complete paragraphs, so you have to you have to dress up sentences where you can. But I, I do try and stay as loyal as possible to the player's voice. I think you do a great job. I think it's, I can't imagine how hard it would be. It's hard enough for writers to find their own voice to to then to go find someone else's. I mean, that's anyone that reads about struggling writers and obviously I'm a big reader and I, I like learning about behind the scenes of everything. And that's the hardest thing for a writer to do is find their voice. Some people take two decades. So I I'm blown away when, when books are written in the first person of someone else's voice, that's not fictional. That's, you know, so I think it's incredibly impressive. That's why I always, I always compliment you and ask about it. Cause I'm like, how do you do that? That's so hard. Um, I'm going to pay the bills real quick and tell you about SeatGeek. Yeah, Jack, we, we lied up before we the lied. show. We got a couple ads. We got a couple more ads we found out about. SeatGeek, sponsor of, uh, official sponsor of the show. They have a system. You buy tickets. That, you go to buy tickets. Green, good tickets. Red, bad tickets. Very simple. They're going to make sure you get the best deals. Baseball is coming up. It says here. So SeatGeek might be breaking news that we don't know about. Um, but every other live event is also happening. I think I'm going to go to a Rangers game soon. I'll use SeatGeek. And if you use $20, you get $20 off your first purchase with code Yanks. Make sure you click the link in the description. Download the app, code Yanks, $20 off your first SeatGeek order. That's a really good discount. I mean, when you use it, $20 can get you, you know, Yankee Stadium. You can get some. Gets you in the house. Get you, get you, can turn some seats around. Gets you in the house. You good? No, okay. BBD getting his footwork on. What's BBD there. doing? What's, I don't know. He got his cardio in there. We got a bigger office now. He, get, he just gets room to run. He's now. just showing off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cardio, you know, Jack, got to keep it up. Um, oh, we didn't talk about music yet. We'll get to music. I also, I have a killer joke later. Stay tuned for that. Okay. Um, for Paul, for now, what, um, what brought out the biggest gleam in his eye that you could feel is it is it the batting title is it is it ring like i feel it's gotta be world series i know I, and that's where i almost i don't want to say this in a rude way so maybe maybe it's taking out world series but you know if if you and if you and paul were you know sitting at the bar maybe sipping on something and he you know he turns to you and he's like 359 man like what what's the thing that kind of brings out maybe the most most pride in him I'm going to give you two answers, and one might slightly surprise you. I don't think the other one will surprise you. I'll start out with the non-surprising one. He, when he talked about his dad, he, he, he would just light up. Mm -hmm. And it, how influential his father was in his career. He had four older brothers and an older sister. His dad turned their backyard into a, into a mini baseball field and... Paul was the youngest and he benefited from being the youngest because you're constantly trying to keep up with your older brothers. His father told him when he was six years old, you're going to be a major league player. And Paul said, you think as a kid, every father tells his kid that, but I still loved hearing that. His father also told him that his swing reminded him of Ted Williams's swing. So that was another thing that stayed with O'Neill. And then the second thing, apart from all the victories and the success, and obviously he loved winning a batting title, but that's not a great memory because the season never finished. So though he won a batting title, the Yankees never had a chance to finish 94. I would say the time where he got the most animated and the most excited was talking about his relationship with Mattingly. Mm. He revered Mattingly. And when he got traded over to the Yankees and he could spend endless hours in the batting cage, picking Mattingly's brain, 
talking about different pitchers that he didn't know as well, because obviously Mattingly was the career American leaguer. He gets very excited talking about Mattingly. And off air, you guys and I were talking about how Jeter always, to this day, calls Joe Torrey Mr. Torrey. He calls Mattingly Cap. Mm. He, he was the captain. It's not Don or Donnie too often. It's always Cap. And so those were some of the things that, that stood out to me. Uh, there's, there's more in there about championship parades and the Yankee fans. And, and there's some really good anecdotal information about his relationship with the fans. One great story post 9-11 that I think if anybody reads it, they'll, they'll have a tear in their eye. But it would really be his dad and Mattingly that, that jump out to me. Mm. Mattingly, that man, I, I obviously, you know, in Yankees world, he's beloved. And some for a lot of people, it's kind of the player that was passed down for maybe a parent or an uncle or something that that guy played the right way. But man, the grind of being a baseball manager, the fact that Don Mattingly, like some, I think sometimes we forget how much guys truly love this sport. Like I don't think Don Mattingly has to, has to manage or needed to manage, but he, that dude loves baseball. Good baseball. I, I think reference. it's, I think it's Sherman or Heyman. That says there should just be like a spot in the Hall of Fame just for like baseball lives. Yeah, like Mattingly should just even if it's not like uh, Dusty uh, Baker. Yeah, like, even if they're yeah, yeah there was the, I think those are the two examples of like you know maybe it's not for their accolades, but like these are guys that just dedicated their life to the sport. And uh, I don't know how you do it. The Hall of Fame's got enough problems already, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I agree with that. Like like you say, Mattingly doesn't have to be. He's just loves baseball like all he all he, all he does i i have a hall of fame vote i had a hall of fame vote while mattingly was on the ballot but i was at the new york times at the time and they weren't letting us vote hall of fame i'm going to be honest with you guys i wouldn't have voted for him based on his playing career at that time but i understand what you're saying about contribution to the game batting coach with the yankees manager with the dodgers and also a manager with the marlins and also, guys, I think we've now come to realize you look at certain people's numbers and the way they got to those numbers as opposed to the way other people got to their numbers. Yeah. It sort of is enlightening. I think that one of those players, I had this discussion with uh, Michael Kay recently. I think Tommy John should be in the Hall of Fame, not only for almost 300 wins, but because he was the first guy to have a surgery that has made <laughs> – Thousands of pitchers, not just professional pitchers, but kids in high school and college allowed to continue to have a career. There's got to be some value. There's got to be some equity in that to say, hey, this guy deserves a spot in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. It, it, whatever tells the story of baseball, you know, it's it's two different things, I guess, but it's 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 confusing <laughs> what goes in and what doesn't Man, and all that. Tommy stuff. John, that's a baseball reference. Wow. Yeah. 26 years. 26-year career? 288 wins. Wow. Damn. <laughs> Am I right? It's 288 yeah. or 283? 288. You had it. I'm not going to make you give away any more chapters, but I, I'm just like biting my tongue to hear more about the comeback in uh, 2002, would it have been? or Yeah. Um, potential comeback. But I won't because we've already we've already teased and given away uh, too many anecdotes already because uh, that, uh, that's wild because I thought he was done. The fact that you say he was interested. So... Well, and, think about this, John Boy. As a 38-year-old, Paul's a big batting average guy. I, I know that it's on-base percentage and OPS now, but there's a lot of references to batting average because mm -hmm. that's how he graded himself. He, he, he acknowledges that OBP and OPS are more descriptive stats, and it's what people use now. But he hit 270-something that year, 20-plus homers, 20-plus stolen bases, I believe. He's the oldest player <laughs> to ever go 20-20. And until September, when he had a fractured foot, the dude had played in 135 of the first 141 games or something like that. He, he was an Ironman that year. So what intrigued him about the potential comeback is, again, Stick was part of this. He felt as if his body had healed a little bit. And he didn't have to, would not have had to do six weeks of spring training it would have been get yourself ready in a few weeks and just slide right into the lineup. That 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 was appealing to him. Man, that last season, 22 steals, 21 home runs. Um, anytime, I know it's almost... It's the only a, time he did 2020, right? <laughs> yeah. It's almost a generic... <laughs> it's almost a generic 
term, but anytime you're the one person in baseball with something, it's kind of the the whoa to be the oldest guy to record 2020. Like that's what was he doing stealing all those bags in in <laughs> in 2001? Well, if you want to hear his voice, I'm not going to give it away, but. He heard himself, well, I'm going to give it away because I have to describe it. He heard himself running from first to third in a game against the Boston Red Sox. And if you want to hear his voice talk about an injury, how the heck do you play in 140 games and run the bases every day? And then one time you run the bases against the Red Sox and you end up with a, a fractured foot. So he, he, he was still aggravated about that two decades later. He got a hit off Pedro went from first to third on another hit and scored on an error or something. He started to go out to the outfield the next inning and he, he waves to Bernie and says, you got to get everything in right center. My, my <laughs> foot is killing me. And he ended up missing about uh he missed several, uh, three of about three weeks. I mean, not, this is a, this is a, a tough tie in, but uh, because of nine 11, they missed seven or eight days of games. He was able to come back and, and play some games at the end of the season. If the season hadn't been, pushed back because of 9-11. He, he wouldn't have uh, played in the first round of the playoffs. He wouldn't have been ready. Mm. <clears throat> Interesting. Well, and he had the perfect ending. Like I said, the the O'Neal chant during the World Series, the whole inning. I mean, I hey, if we have any Yankees fans that have don't know that moment, like, yeah. like too young, um, it's on the Yankeeography. I don't know if you can watch the game, but the whole stadium just chanted his name during the game, during a potential game where the Yankees would have lost the World Series because it was his last game in Yankee Stadium. It's incredible. It's my favorite thing Yankees fans have ever done. They were, they were about to lose the World Series, and they chose, instead of bemoaning that in the moment, to cheer on their warrior and congratulate him in the later innings until he acknowledged them. It's, inc- it's awesome. It gives me chills thinking about it. So good thing he just left that be his last moment because it's a perfect yeah, he, send-off. He talks about that quite emotionally, and you nailed it. And he, to this day, still talks about how difficult it is to respond to that. You're in the middle of a World Series game that you are losing. <laughs> you can't suddenly start waving your cap and waving to the fans. There, there, there's a game that's being played. There's a, there's a vital game that's being played. So he mentioned that when he got a plaque in Monument Park. He mentioned that as well to the fans about how memorable that day was for him. So we kind of dig a little deep into what his emotions were on that day and and how the fans who he already loved gave him an everlasting hug right there. Mm. How, uh, I, I mean, I feel like it gets discussed on the broadcast here and there, but 2001 is final season. It's, it's whenever we open it up to questions, it's a question we, we get a lot. Like what's one of your favorite Yankees memories. And for me, it's one of the weirdest weirdest ones and I think people are surprised but it kind of is that Diamondbacks series because it's like the dynasty is still going they get Young Young Kim on back-to-back nights and it's just for me at that age and what the Yankees were it was like these guys can never be beat and then you know they go back and the rest is history and it's it's not good history I mean does that uh, where where is Paul does does it like eat at him, eat at him? Because you're, you're talking about him getting beat on a, you know, a one-two, two-seamer that he the, he hit the other day. I mean, to lose uh, the World Series like that. Still eats at Jeter, even though he won a ton more. Yeah. I'm going to say this, because I want people to buy this book and pre-order it, and I don't want to give away all of my Fair. tidbits here. I'm going to say this, that O'Neill's response to what 2001 was and how his career ended in that manner, it may surprise you how content he is with the way it ended. Okay. okay. I'll leave it at that. Where can they pre-order? Uh, Where can they pre-order it? Is there a, where's the best place to send them? Amazon and Barnes and Noble are the best places to pre-order okay. it. Okay. Anywhere that you get books, you could probably get it, but those are the two places that most people go to. And I, I put this out on social media that, Pre-order is probably the best word that an author could ever hear if someone said, I pre-ordered your book. So it gets the attention toward the book. It gets a little momentum going. And even though the book isn't coming out until May, it's helpful for us to do things like this and talk with it, talk about it with you. And 
we'll make sure at some point that we uh that we get Paul in this box right here, so you guys can uh, talk oh, to him about no, it. Oh, well. you know, we've we've talked to a lot of people. Uh, yes, I don't know if we've ever interacted with with Paulie. Really? So you've never done an interview with him? No, no. I don't think he's the most tech savvy. So uh, <laughs> oh, he does Zoom. Now he does he, Zoom everywhere. Down in the basement, he was in Ohio and Florida doing the doing the. Yeah, games Zoom has, Zoom has brought everyone to our level, which is kind of. We'll nice. do like so a home and home. We got you, and then we'll have Paul in a couple weeks or something <laughs> like that. I'm so. pre-ordering it right now because pre-ordering books has actually become one of my favorite things to do. It's a nice little I, surprise. I go to Barnes and Noble and I, cause I actually, I really like paperback. So I go to Barnes and Noble and I see all the, the new books that I want. And then I pre-order the paperback. And then three months later at my doorstep, a book comes that I forgot I pre-ordered. And it's like, wow, what a great present for myself. You are an author's dream. <laughs> that is, uh, is, is terrific. So I appreciate that. And Paul appreciates it as well. Hey, so, talking Yanks fans to order it, take a screenshot. Uh, tag Jack Curry, tag Talking Yanks. Jake's we'll, going to send everyone to a different website. We get a percentage for, of that. For a different reason. Yeah. Uh, this is a good one. Well, no, I'm, I told you, I told you I'm going to set up my joke of joke of the episode. This okay. isn't a joke, but it's presented by Roman. Uh, it's almost Valentine's Day and love is in the air. Mm. Um, and hey, if you've been having trouble, mm-hmm. go to getroman.com slash Yanks. They will get you in touch with the U.S. license. Healthcare professional if about if you're not going twenty for twenty at age thirty eight. Right, right. If you're not, I mean, Paulie. Oh, holy smokes! <laughs> <laughs> get prescribed and get fifteen dollars off your first month of treatment. It's simple. Just go to getroman.com/slash/yanks. Complete your online visit. Make sure you're Roman ready, especially for Jake's Roman ready joke of the episode. That's getroman.com/slash/yanks. Uh, Jack, I already half made this joke to you uh, okay. in the DMs, but um, like is, is Carlos Beltran on watch now? Like I, you've just been attacking the yes booth. I mean, now that Beltran is oh, next book. Yeah. I mean, it feels like it, that feels like it's like Carlos is going to be looking over his shoulder at you. Like I'm, it's my turn, right? Well, I think Kay's probably saying, hey, only players only. I got a story. To tell. Kay had to give you a one liner. He always does. <laughs> It's it's a great question, but I have another book in the hopper already. Wow! After the O'Neill book, I am doing a book on the 1998 Yankees. Oh, that's a good one. That'll that's come out one. in 2023 as a 25th anniversary book. So okay. I don't want to have two in the hopper. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to work on that one first, and then see where I go after that. Okay. Look at this, Damn. Marshall McAllister in the live chat. I just pre-ordered, so we got you. Marshall McAllister. I like that. I, I bet name. you that guy can spit. That sounds too much like Eminem for that guy not to Ooh. be able to give us a couple of, give us 16 bars. Marshmack. Thank you, Marshall. Yeah. A little bullpen name, I think. Marshmack. Marshall McAllister. It's a good name. Gets out. All right. Well, we're hogging a lot of your time. We appreciate it, but we just need some music Jack before, before music we let corner. you go. Jake, have you heard the new Glass Animals song? New? No, no. So, Jack, I. Despite my life being on the internet and living on the internet, I'm like, I'm eight to 10 months behind society. So when we first engaged about glass animals, like tangerine was new to me. And I was like, yeah, this is my, my favorite YouTube comment on glass animals. And again, that's, I'm like just dated myself to the kids that I watch music on YouTube. But the comment is it sounds like a lava lamp made music. And that's why I like glass animals. So fill me in. I don't want to talk. I just want to dance. That's the name of the song. Every day. You will love it. Okay. My second recommendation is a band called The Wombats. The song is called If You Ever Leave, I'm Coming With You. The Wombats. I've heard of them. Then for John Boy, Thursday night, February 3rd, Fallon is doing a live stream where he's doing all 59 sound. Doing the whole album. He is? Oh, that's very exciting. You know, Go to his Instagram, Brian Fallon. And then I'll, I'll, actually, I'll give you one more. Bob Marley's uh, sons. Got to get all the names right. Ziggy, Ziggy Damien, and Steven, Kemani. I'm forgetting one. Coming out with a song to celebrate their dad's 77th birthday on Friday. And I am very Ooh. much looking forward to that. Wow. Whoa. Well, I'm so excited about the guy. Fallon one. Yeah, the Fallon one's great. I actually, I haven't interacted with him. Benny from Gaslight Anthem is a big Yankees fan. 
So uh, the drummer, so he he follows and interacts a lot, which is cool. And he's I love I love Benny. Yeah. Benny and I are buddies. I've had a, I've had a couple of drinks with Benny in Hoboken, New Jersey, and uh, we text back and forth a lot. He's got a a new band that he drums for called Mercy Union. They have a they have an album coming out soon. But Bernie knows his stuff. Benny knows his stuff. Bernie. Benny knows his. <laughs> Benny, who I sometimes call Bernie, knows yeah. his stuff. Yeah, I'm excited about. I. Uh... I bet I was on a Brian Fallon kick like last week. And sometimes I just think about, well, what if I got to talk to him and interview him? And I just have, so now I have a notepad of questions I'd ask him. Yeah. I'm going to check that out. It should be good. So you got Fallon for Jim, you got glass animals for me. You got any like Megan the stallion or something for BBD or what? That's what BBD wants. BBD. What do you listen to? BBD listens to all of it. I, Megan the Stallion, though I know a couple of the song titles, I, I would probably have to stay in my lane. I don't. I do okay. not know that I would be giving the best advice on Megan the Stallion. How about Super Bowl halftime? What do you guys think of that? I just found out who was performing in it. I'm so out of loop on that, but um, Jimmy was a little so shocked. Yeah, I'm interested to see how it sounds. I I, uh, I like the promo that they did for it. I I, I like those artists individually. So I'm curious to see how they're going to split up the time. I'm curious to see who's going to go first, who's going to collaborate, who's going to close it. It should be interesting. Yeah. Was it last, was last year the weekend where he's running through the, the mirror tunnel? I think it was last year. That was two years. That was one year ago. Two years ago. I have no idea when it feels like a blur. Oh, Shakira. Shakira did it. Awesome. What was last year? That feels like so long ago. I don't know. That I, feels like forever ago. Yeah. I guess that's I'm I'm more signed up to see what uh what kind of funkiness they do with the presentation and all that. Like, yeah, it was the weekend in 2021. Look at that. Shakira and J Lo 2020. Mm. It's a lot of moving parts. So sometimes yeah. I feel like that doesn't sound good. It's a it's a very valid point. That's why I said I'm curious to see how they divide it up. Yeah. Just who's going to fly in on a high wire? That's the new trick they do every Super Bowl halftime. You're not going to guess what we're doing this time. Like <laughs> flying someone in the high wire again. Eight, eight years running. <laughs> it's, funny. it's like base cam for the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we did it. But th- thank you very much for joining us and, uh, you know, giving us something fun to talk about in the midst of uh, having nothing to talk about. And uh, I hope Always everyone. A pleasure. Yeah. Hope everyone orders. Always a pleasure reads. to talk with you guys. And here you go. Ooh. Wow! Now, did he approve that that image? Or is he yeah. thick, was he fickle on that? Like, no, that was that was a pop out. I can tell. What was the he result? Did. Yeah. Okay. He liked it. Okay. He liked it. He liked the title, which is swinging ahead, which is kind of just right straight to the point. <laughs> yeah. Who Paul was. That's, so yeah, that's Paul O'Neill, swinging ahead. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Thank you very much, Jack. Appreciate it as always. And hopefully, we're talking about uh, you know twenty twenty two baseball next time. We, we have you join us. Let's hope so. Continued success to you guys. Thanks for having me. All Thank right. You. Here comes the outro. If it works, it's probably not going to work. I'll play like this. Go Yanks. Tell them, Grams. Go Yankees.